0: Genesis chapter 11. Now, for those who have not been with us for very long, or for those that are new today, just a little background. We've been in the book of Genesis now since January of 2010. So that means we're completing two years. Uh, in our study of the book of Genesis. And by the end of this year, we will have been finished now with uh, the first 11 chapters. Of course, we're going to be concluding those in just a couple of weeks, starting today. But um, I mention this because it's really a reminder of why we've taken so much time to, to study this uh, passage in depth. The first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis... Uh, are the most criticized chapters of all the Bible, criticized by the evolutionists, the humanists, the atheists, the, the um, um, agnostics, as well as some people even in the church uh, who are actually liberal in their theology. They do not consider that the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis are Actually, true, their stories as they consider them, uh, just uh, symbolic stories, stories to encourage us, stories to help us uh, in thinking about God. But how, what good is a God who will not give us truth from the beginning to the end? We have a God that is a God of truth. And therefore, it, as we said two years ago when we started this study, But in Genesis 1 verse 1, if we can believe the first four words in the beginning, God, we can believe every word after that. And and this was one reason why we spent so much time dealing with the creation, dealing with the six days of creation, six 24 hour days of creation, dealing with the issue of sin and the fall of man, dealing with the issues of, of uh, of course, during the creation time, the issues of dinosaurs and all of that other stuff. Some people thought it was crazy. It's not crazy. God said these things were true. And if Jesus himself quoted from these chapters and the apostles and the prophets, then we need to realize that that's the truth we stand upon. So uh, it has been quite a journey for us. And I just I have to just let you know that as soon as we're done with chapter 11 of Genesis, we are going to study chapter 12 (laughs) in January. Right after the new year, we'll be continuing on. In the book of Genesis, and of course, now following the narrative from Abraham all the way through to Joseph. But uh, it'll be a little quicker than it has been these past two years. Our text this morning, verses 1 through 9. This is an introduction, so we're we're not going to go into any great in-depth things, but I I do want to touch upon some very spiritual issues that we need to deal with. But we also need a good foundation as to why we're going to spend this time in this chapter. Let me read it to you first, and then we'll get right into our study. And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And they said one to another, Go to, let us make brick and burn them throughly. And they had brick for stone and slime had they for mortar. And they said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven. And let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one and they have all one language. And this they begin to do. And from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. Shall we pray? Father, we depend upon your Holy Spirit, Lord, to lead us and to guide us into your truth this morning. We ask that you would anoint us and bless us with your spirit. We ask that you would give us your wisdom and grace, your understanding. And Lord, that we would indeed have an appreciation, Lord God, for the for the strength of your word in our lives. May it be deep, deeply rooted in us. We pray in Jesus name. Amen. I, I don't know if you realize it or not, but everyone in this room. Is part of a minority group. Less. Then 10% of the people in the world speak English. How many of you speak English? Oh, that's a good thing. We, even though we're the majority in this room, we are a minority in this world. Again, because less than 10% in the world speak English. Estimates are that just under 500 million people on planet Earth are English speakers, while over twice that many speak Mandarin Chinese. Twice 500 million is a billion. A billion people speak Mandarin Chinese. Now, I do have to ask the question, do any of you, and please be honest, but do any of you speak Mandarin Chinese? Okay, so actually we all are in a minority, aren't we? So, with that in mind, there are many, many languages on the planet today. Over 200 different languages are spoken, and, and there are also another couple of thousand dialects that, that people use. So, from the 200, we, we can gain a whole lot of other dialects uh, that add up to about 2,000 languages, as it were. And so it's interesting that many linguists, those who study languages, have finally decided that the Bible has been right all along. They've come up with the idea that really the Bible is right all along because they agree that there was only initially one human language at first. So how did we get from one to 2,000? Well, linguists have a variety of explanations, but I'm convinced the best and true answer for the diversity of language, of course, is found in Genesis chapter 11, what we just read at the beginning of chapter 11, the story of the Tower of Babel. This is going to be the text for us uh, for the next couple of weeks, verses 1 through 9. And this account not only tells us why some folks speak English and others Finnish and others speak Swahili and others may speak uh, Tex-Mex, But it also has uh, very important lessons for us, very important lessons about pride, and and really as well about uh, prophetic issues as well. We'll see that in the next few weeks. So I pray that that the Lord will open our hearts and our minds to the truths found here in this uh, significant chapter as we prepare to close out our study of the first prominent section of the book of Genesis, which is, of course, the first 11 chapters. It's interesting that the Word of God begins and ends with descriptions of two prominent cities. If anything, the Bible is indeed a tale of two cities. The first prominent city that we encounter in Genesis and in the book of Revelation is Babylon. Or as it is called in our text, Babel. In Genesis chapters 10 and 11, we read that uh, Babylon was founded by a sinful man whose name is Nimrod. In Revelation 17 and 18, we read of Babylon's founding by the man of sin. We call him the Antichrist. But in fact, it it goes all the way to Satan himself. Nimrod established the former Babylon in his rebellion against God. The Antichrist will establish the future Babylon in his rebellion against God. But it all stems from this one man in Genesis chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, whose name was Nimrod. We are told of Nimrod that he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Uh, Wherefore, it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And notice the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel. Now, that's the mention of that first city in the book of Genesis. But in the book of Revelation, we see another description. Revelation 17, verses 3 through 6. It says, So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand, full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. The word admiration there in the King James, which is 400 years old, by the way, uh, has a little bit of a different meaning, had a different meaning than as it does now. Because John was not, I should say, um, well, yeah, John was not admiring what he saw in this vision. He was actually in astonishment of what he saw. The second prominent city is the New Jerusalem. Notwithstanding that we had some glimpse of it when we looked at the Garden of Eden back in the early chapters of Genesis. The the, the perfection of the garden. The uh, perfection of the creatures that were there. To some extent, that would be some picture, at least that we could understand, of a heavenly city. But in fact, in Genesis chapter 12, the Lord calls Abram or Abraham out of his country and he promises him that he will become a great nation. And while New Jerusalem is not mentioned by name, Abraham is described in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 10. This way, it says, for he, Abraham, look for a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. That's the heavenly city. That's the new Jerusalem. The book of Hebrews goes on to describe the city Abraham looked for as the heavenly city. The city being prepared in heaven for the eternal habitation of those who love God. In Hebrews 11 verse 6 it says, But now they desire a better country. And by the way, the word country is is in italics in the the, uh, King James. And so that word isn't really there. It's just put there to give us a little bit of, of insight into into the statement that uh, Paul was making. But he says, but now they desire a better country, that is, a, a heavenly one. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So we know then that that which is heavenly is a city. We don't have its name up to this point. Until we get to the book of Revelation. Now, I know that Peter writes about uh, the new Jerusalem, but, but let's, let's look at Revelation 21, because here in Revelation 21, we see the city. It says in verses 1 and 2, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. A tale of two cities, Babylon and the New Jerusalem. Folks, this is really important for us to kind of lay this foundation before we enter into chapter 11 of Genesis. Because, you see, I want you to understand very sincerely and I want you to understand prayerfully that our destination as believers in Jesus Christ, you are believers in Jesus Christ, aren't you? Well, our destination as believers in Jesus Christ is the new Jerusalem. That's the city we're looking for. That's the city that we desire in our hearts. We may live here in El Paso, Texas, but our salvation and our eternal life is going to be lived in the New Jerusalem. That's what we're desiring. That's our destination. So our destination is the New Jerusalem, but in the meantime, we are still in danger from Babylon. There's still a real Babylon. In closing, his first letter, the Apostle Paul wrote this. In 1 Peter 5, verse 13, he says, The church that is at Babylon, elected together with you, saluteth you, and so does Marcus, my son. But that first phrase, the church that is at Babylon, why does he write that? You see, this is the closing salutation from the church in the city from which Paul was writing this letter. Where did he write the letter uh, to the church? He wrote it from Rome. He calls it Babylon. He says he was in Babylon. That is not to say that we just equate Babylon with Rome and Rome with Babylon. See, why would he make such a connection? Why would he say what he says there? Well, you have to understand that the first century Christians evidently felt that this world was a dangerous Babylon to them as they journeyed through it while having set their eyes on their hope of seeing their future destination, which is the New Jerusalem. Our destination is the New Jerusalem. We're living in Babylon. And this is what ties us to the 11th chapter of the book of Genesis and what makes it applicable and significant for us today. In other words, what city do we really live in today? You know, many of us grew up here in El Paso. We, we, we were born, raised here, maybe in Juarez, and then moved over here to El Paso. We've been in this area for all, almost all our lives, right? I mean, not all of our lives because we're still alive. We've got a little bit of life to go, I believe, I hope. But we've been living here a good portion of our lives. And then there are those of you who have come into El Paso through, because of the military or because of jobs or whatever else, and, and some of you say, you know, I've actually talked to some of you, and you've told me, you know, I came to El Paso, we came from here and there, but we really like it here. But then I've talked to a lot of people that say they don't like it at all. I don't like El Paso. I've heard people talk in stores, and they can't stand El Paso. But see, it's not their home. It's our home to a certain degree, you know, as we grew up here. But you know what? I don't care what city you're from, whether it's El Paso or Los Angeles or, or Minneapolis or New York City. Wherever you're from, every city is a Babylon. Every city is a Babylon because it has the dangers of Babylon in it all around. All around. So we have to agree that we live in this Babylon. And yet, at the same time, what city are we looking for? You know, what is our destination? What are we looking for as believers in Jesus Christ? I hope and pray that you're looking for the new Jerusalem. Jerusalem. That's why I mentioned this morning in prayer that, you know, that Jonathan Edwards himself was the one who said, Lord, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. Why? Because eternity we're going to spend in the new Jerusalem. We're going to spend there in the presence of God. We call it heaven, but, you know, it's the new Jerusalem. It's the city where we belong. And we belong there not because of anything we've done. We belong there because God has adopted us. We are his children. Now, we could say that we are living in old Babylon as opposed to New Jerusalem. We are living in old Babylon, a city whose builder and maker is the enemy of God. You know, it's significant that Babylon itself is mentioned over 300 times in 269 verses of the King James Version of the Bible. That's significant. It is significant. Uh, It makes it an important subject in the Scriptures. Babylon is all throughout the Scriptures. And as we've already pointed out, (coughs) its founders and uh, past, present, and future are antagonistic enemies of God. The founders are antagonistic against God and against Christ and against the church and against the things of God and against the Word of God and against Christians, believers in God and in Christ. And Nimrod, the mighty arrogant hunter against the Lord and Antichrist the beast himself, They were the initiators. As already stated in a previous study, Nimrod means let's rebel. we will probably apply that also to, to Babel. Let's rebel. An interesting little phrase in that little phrase. Just take the word let's and break it down. It means let us. Let us rebel. And we're gonna, I, keep, I want you to keep that in mind because we're going to come to that phrase a few times here in our text. But as a mighty one, Nimrod was in fact a tyrant who hunted not for game, but for men. Not for sport, but for subduing. I know I mentioned that when we were studying chapter 10, but it seemed a little far-fetched at, at, at one point to think, well, you know, you have to. you have to read all of that into this life of Nimrod? No, not really. We're going to see that come alive here in chapter 11. But he set himself against the creator God by searching out men to subdue them and to bring them under his own rule. Again, I want you to consider a phrase that we find in Genesis chapter 10, verses, uh, verses 9 down through verse 12, but in verse 9 especially. The phrase is about Nimrod and he becomes the example then of other Nimrods because he says he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore, it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. So that phrase was said of anybody that was just like Nimrod. And and so this seems to have become the description of those who would follow in the ways of Nimrod. In the Bible, we're going to meet people like Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was one who was like Nimrod, the mighty hunter of the Lord. In history, we uh, we have met people like Alexander the Great, same thing, Napoleon, Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, Mao Zedong, and when the list could go on and on, all those who seek to subdue and dominate others. As for Nimrod, we find that, that he actually established a confederacy of eight cities and, they, and he turned those confederacies of eight cities into two city-states. Very large areas that control most of the land because the idea was to rule and to dominate. When we read in verse 10 of Genesis 10, it says the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. So that was the established city, Babel and Erech and Akkad and Calneh in the land of Shinar. And then we read this phrase, Out of that land went forth Ashur. Now, if you read it in that manner, you would think that now the subject has changed from, uh, from Nimrod to Ashur. Ashur, by the way, if you remember last time, was the son of Shem. But we're not changing the subject here. Uh, the, the translation uh, needs to be revised a little bit here in the, in the sense that what it reads is literally Nimrod... As he's continuing his kingdom building, in the Hebrew, in the literal Hebrew, it says he went forth into Ashur. What it tells us is that the son of Shem, Ashur, has settled in a particular area of this plain of Shinar and has established some kind of, of of a community. But Nimrod came and actually he overtook it for himself. This is what that particular phrase says at the beginning of verse 11. So already we see the kingdom building attitude and desire of Nimrod. Because this whole issue here is about this one person setting up his kingdom. Began with Babel, Erech, Akkad, Akal, in the land of Shinar, out of the land went forth Ashur, He went into Ashur, and he built Nineveh. And the city Rehoboth and Kala and resin between Nineveh and Kala, the same as a great city. Now, now, what needs to be understood about that particular phrase is this. Nine, Nineveh was not built by Ashur, it was built by Nine, uh, Nimrod. The reason we know that is because Nim, uh, Nineveh is a derivation of the name Nimrod. It comes out of the name Nimrod. So let's consider this other point in, in, in the works of Nimrod's works and ways. We talked about the eight-city confederacy that we find in these two or three verses here. But the one that ends with Kala, it says, In Resin between Nineveh and Kala, the same as a great city. That was actually the four cities that are mentioned, Nineveh being, the, the, I guess, the chief city, and then Rehoboth and Kala and Resin between Nineveh and Kala, the same as a great city. The very same four uh, confederacy states, city-states, along with the first ones mentioned, just in different areas, north or south, they still control the vast majority of the land of the plains of Shinar. But what's interesting is that the city of Kalah has been excavated. They have found it. They have excavated it. And the archaeologists who did the work there labeled the city, Kalah, labeled the city as Nimirud. Nimirud. What does that sound like? Nimrod. This was his kingdom building. So where we begin our study then of chapter 11, it, it is actually with the initial phrase of Genesis 10 verse 10. It begins here. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. With all this in mind, let's begin our look at chapter 11. And by the way, still introduction here, so we're still building. Not kingdom, we're building our understanding of this passage. Verses 1 and 2. The whole earth was of one language and of one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they dwelt there. Now, when you hear that, when you see it and when you read it and when you hear it, it doesn't seem like a whole lot. I mean, it seems like, first of all, there's a language lesson in verse 1. And in verse 2, it's just kind of a little bit of a history lesson. I mean, did that not uh, seem that way in those two verses? I, you know, you could read that and say, well, it's just a little information. That's all it is. Nope, it's not all that there is. First of all, in verse 1, it begins with a very simple phrase in Hebrew. The phrase in Hebrew would be translated... And the whole earth was of one lip and one set of words. That's what it literally says in the Hebrew. The whole earth was of one lip and one set of words. Now, this would refer to the one language more than likely spoken before the flood. A language I know that Noah had to have been speaking. A language that his sons Shem, Ham, and Japheth had been speaking. Because that's how they communicated. That's how God communicated with them. And you can take this language all the way back to Adam and Eve. When God communicated with them, he spoke with them in one language. Now, this might well have been the Hebrew language. I tend to believe that. That it was the Hebrew language or a similar Semitic language in which Noah and Shem and their descendants would have transmitted the primitive records orally until finally set in written form by Moses. Well protected by the Lord that it might reach us as it has. I don't think that we ever think about this thought very much. But you know for the word of God to come from, uh, from the very beginnings of time for us you know with Adam and Eve communicating with God. For there to be a message from them of God all the way to us is astounding that it has stayed preserved for us. That tells me that God really cares about what we learn of him. And that we don't have anything mess up in in, in the transmission of it. Because the world might think, you know, well, there's so many languages and, you know, you can, you can actually start thinking of one thing or another and it goes, you know, you, there might be one little derivation of something and then you, all of a sudden you're, you're speaking a different language. You know, it kind of reminds me of how, you know, in Star Trek and the Trekkies. Any of Trekkies here, by the way? You don't have to let me know that. <laughs> some, some of you did, but it's okay. Well, you know, you know, we, we, we oftentimes think, oh, you know, what a wonderful thing. You know, everybody in the world and in the universe speaks English. Until they started, you know, kind of, uh, you know, building up on, on, on the characters in, in, in Star Trek. And so we were fascinated when there was actually a Klingon language. And that they was developed just for the show, you know. So, you know, you can go out and if you want to spend the money, you can buy a dictionary on the on the Klingon language and learn how to speak Klingon. Anybody interested in Klingon? You know, my only concern is how do you say Jesus loves you in Klingon, man? You know, I, that's all I care about, but... You know, that's the thing, though. So we think, you know, we can make up our own language, or people can make up one thing or another. But it's incredible how God has kept it all together. Because when it comes right down to it, when we leave this earth, and we stand before God, there's only going to be one language, and it's His. He gave us one lip and one set of words. Now, we've had it translated for us into many languages. So that all will come to know Jesus Christ. But folks, when it comes right down to it, we are a people of one language. God's language. And By the way, there's one other language you need to know. That's the language of the love of Christ. You need to know that language. So, as we look at verse 2 now, not just a history lesson here. Listen, we begin to see the crux of the matter. You go back to Genesis 9 for just a moment, and we're told there in verse 1, God speaking to Noah. It says, God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said unto them, speaking to Noah and his sons, he says, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. That's a command. That's not a suggestion. It's a command. Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. A flood had wiped out all who were living on the the earth at the time, except for the eight that were in the ark. Now he says, go forth. And replenish. Which means keep going. You know, your families grow, send them out. Send them out. You know, we're just gonna keep sending them out so that we can replenish the earth. What were we, what were we having, what were we saying that needed to be taken out into the world? It was the knowledge of God and God's love for them and God's desire to, to help them and save them. But they forgot God. Remember as, as the sons of Japheth went one direction and the sons of Ham the other direction and the sons of Shem another direction. Most of them forgot about God. They weren't transmitting that anymore. But at the at the beginning, the command was, go and replenish the earth. Be fruitful and multiply. Verse 7, and you be fruitful and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply therein. So th- there may have been a good beginning, but as we shall see, they left from following God's command. They got away from following God's command. The good beginning is found in the word journeyed, by the way, there in verse 2. When they journeyed, that was a good thing because it says they picked up stakes. The stakes that, that secured their tents. It, it tells us that in compliance with God's word, men were living in tents and temporary dwellings as they went out to fill the whole earth. They knew that they were just going to live in one place. You know, they were going to be moving around. They were going to do what God had commanded them to do. But upon coming to the plains of Shinar, they settled there against God's clear command. And the words are very clear. I mean, let's look at it again. It says they came to pass as a journey from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. That, that means they didn't, they didn't want to pick up stakes anymore. They just wanted to plant them and keep them there. And that was against what God had commanded them. But it wasn't so much, you know, that some people weren't going to stay there, but they didn't want to leave there. They just wanted to stay right there. It must have been a beautiful place. Probably not comparable to the Garden of Eden, but nonetheless it was still beautiful. It was probably very fruitful. They probably could eat there every day without having to do much except pick food from the, you know, from there and maybe the animals that they had in that whole area. The Fertile Crescent, by the way, as it were. But in these four verses, verses 1 through 4, we see them disobeying the Lord. Instead of filling the earth, they congregated in one area, revealing the fullness of their pride. Because anytime you begin to choose to disobey God's word, you are revealing pride. Three times... In these four verses, and by the way, more specifically, three times in two verses, verses three and four, we see this phrase, let us. Let's look at it, verses three and four. They said to one another, go to, let us make brick and burn them throughly. And they had brick for stone and slime, had they for mortar. I'm going to explain this a little bit more next time because this is a very important thing that we, we see here. We're not going into specifics today. In verse 4, it says, They said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven. And let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. You know, the only other time that we've seen that phrase used, let us, and in its most proper sense, was when the Godhead used it in 1st in the first chapter of Genesis, verse 26, when God said, let us make man in our image. The Godhead, the one God in three persons. Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. When God said it, as He said it uh, amongst the one Godhead. It was for the purpose of revealing His plans for man. Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Now we'll see it used again by the Lord in a different way in chapter 11, verse 7. And there's some sense, there's just a a little thing, I'll talk about it next time, but there's a little taste of mockery here, of God mocking man, in a sense. Because you remember that, what was man saying? He says, go to, let us make brick. Go to, let us build. So God says, go to, let us go down. And there confound their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. Notice that they wanted to make a name for themselves. Those who settled in the plains of Shinar. They, they wanted to make a name for themselves. Let us make us a name. Instead of being scattered to fill the earth and multiplying according to God's pattern and purpose, according actually really to God's name, they, I mean, they just wanted to stay together. We're one big happy family. It's the new age now. Let's all just get together. We'll surround this whole plain of Shinar. We'll hold hands and we'll sing, We Are the World. Or as they used to sell Coke back in the Coca Cola, not Coke, you know, but Coca Cola. <laughs> back in the late 60s, you know, with a commercial where everybody's on a hillside, we want to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony and drinking their Cokes. You know, we're all, we're all just one big happy family. They just want to stay together. The problem is, and I don't mean about the ones on the hillside of the 1968, you know, drinking Coke, but those in the plains of Shinar. The problem was that we see here their desire to be independent from God. And their desire to be disobedient toward God. God says one thing and they do another. That's pride. So in a word, we see the resurgence of pride. We've already seen what pride and sin does to a civilization. From the very place where man sins against God in the garden... And actually, really, the, the, the very essence of pride is, is in the serpent himself who deceives Eve and then Adam to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because they were conned into believing you know, that God didn't really want them to eat of that fruit only because they would become just like God. Well, folks, that's the Babylonian religion. That's the religion of the New Age today. We can be like God. As a matter of fact, most of the people who who are into the New Age uh, mysticism and the New Age types of religions, as it were, you can include Buddhism with that and Hinduism and other other forms of those religions. But the whole idea is, we become gods. We can become gods. The Bible teaches there is only one God. So that is where pride comes. And that pride destroyed a whole civilization of people by the flood. And only by God's grace were there eight people that were saved to continue on, to accomplish what God was going to accomplish His way, always. That we would fulfill the earth that we would be fruitful and multiply and replenish it. You see, Solomon warned us in Proverbs 16, verse 18, that pride goeth before destruction. Pride always goeth before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. A haughty spirit is is an arrogant spirit. It's a conceited spirit. It's a spirit that says, I'm more important than you, I'm more important than anybody. I'm more important than God. So you can't tell me how to live or how to do anything. I I do it all my way, you know. I know some of you probably used to like Frank Sinatra singing, I did it my way, right? Well, you know, if you read the Scriptures, you realize if you do it your way, you're not going to heaven. You're going to hell. And this is what we will see in this chapter. Chapter their fall and their scattering because pride caused them to be independent from the Lord and disobedient to the Lord's commands. Now, this is very important for you to understand. When God gave them the command in Genesis 9 to be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth, that was God giving us the opportunity to be blessed by obedience. We would be blessed by obeying God and going forth and doing exactly as He calls us because everything God does for us is for the good. And if we listen to his commands and we do them, then we, we, we will be blessed. And he would have blessed those families that went out and continued to, uh, to remind their families and their descendants about God. But they forgot God. And then here they are in rebellion against God by wanting to just stay in, this, in these plains of Shinar. And, and what does God have to do? He comes down, he confounds their language, and then he does what? He scatters them himself. Now it's better that when God commands us to scatter, that we just go ahead and do what He says and we're going to be blessed by it. But when, he, when we rebel and then He comes down and then He judges, He's still going to scatter us, isn't He? But that second scattering is not going to be as good as the first if we had done it the right way. The point is this. God is going to have His way done. And please understand that when God has His way done, He's still doing it. For His glory and for our good. Still. So this is not an opportunity to get mad at God. No, there's no reason to get mad at God. Everything He does for us is good. So please understand that. But pride gets in the way. And I want to speak to you all as believers in Jesus Christ. And I hope you all are. But if you're not, you need to come to know Jesus. But here's the thing. I'm speaking to the church. Pride will affect our worship. Pride is going to affect our worship. Let's let's just see this in Genesis chapter 11, verse 4. Pride affects our worship in a number of ways. Notice it says, they said, Go to, let us build a city and a tower, whose top may reach unto heaven. Now, the New Age... Believers, the new age proponents—you know, the the ones who who, you know believe that you know there are many gods, many ways to God, and 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 really, you know, you can you need to be tolerant of all religions. They say we need to be tolerant, and they tell the Christian all the time, you need to be more tolerant of other beliefs because there are many roads to God. And we're sitting here with our Bibles, and it says Jesus says to us, "I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me." This is the truth. But they say, no, 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 you have to be, you have to be, uh, uh, you need to be tolerant. Really? But are they tolerant of us? They're not. As a matter of fact, most people in this country are beginning to turn against Christianity and against Christ. What a double standard. They want us to be tolerant, but they won't be tolerant of what we believe. I believe every word that Jesus gave us in his word. If I stand by that, and they say, well, if you teach that, eventually one day they're going to arrest you for it. Good, let them arrest me. I have another congregation inside of four walls. I don't care. You know, we need to stand on God's word. How tolerant is a society when they suspend a five-year-old child who prays at his meal at school? that sound great? America, the land of the free and the home of the Atlanta Braves. That's what most people care about. They don't care about what it really means to live in a country where we are supposed to be free. To even practice our faith wherever we are. What's happened to this country? I read an article this week in the World Magazine. World Magazine is really kind of like your... Your time or newsweek a from a Christian perspective, but there was an article there about a college in it was a Methodist university or college in uh, in California that uh, was was actually going bankrupt they weren 't getting a lot of students coming, so they they decided that they were going to invite a uh, a particular group from Judaism to join them and become a part of their uh, school and, uh, and and a an Islamic, uh uh, group center to come, and the three of them now would have um, uh, this uh, this school. So every so pastors and and, and uh, uh, theology students and all they could best you know kind of grow together. Uh, they even called it kind of a, a new age of, of of an emerging type of church. Those were the words that were used in there, and I thought, wow, emerging church, new age. But where's the truth? You see, when you put all those three together, it doesn't matter. At the end of the day, they don't see eye to eye. But that shows us what's happening in our world and in our country. We're living in Babylon. One of the, one of the issues that we'll talk about in the next couple of weeks is that Babylon is about polytheism. It is about many gods And many roads to God. The Bible is about one road. It is about one path. It is about one belief. It is about one Lord, one faith, one baptism. It is about Jesus Christ and the work He did on the cross for us. That is what Christianity is about. And for the very fact that Jesus Christ is alive and real and living today. And His Spirit is moving in us and, and, and changing our lives. We are not the same people we were when we, before we came to know Christ. I hope we're not. If we are, something's wrong. We have to be changed. The miracle of the way God changes a person's heart, a person's life. But it's about worship, isn't it? And pride affects our worship. It affected them so much that they just completely went the other direction from the God who says, I am your God, I will keep you, I will protect you, I will provide for you if you'll just continue to trust me. And and did they trust him? No, they said, no, we're going to live ourselves right here in the plains of Shinar. And we're going to build a tower that reaches up into heaven. Now, the New Age people like that. They like that that idea that, you know, uh, this is actually a uh, uh, a positive thing for them. Oh, the the, the Tower of Babel was a good thing. The Bible's telling us that it isn't. But just a few years ago, not many years ago, back when the European community was forming, the European, you know, it was called the European Common Market and the European community and all that, all they were trying to do was was establish themselves like a United States of Europe. So they began to, you know, bring other nations together and they, they formed this European community. While they were doing that, uh, they were, of course, trying to find ways of of establishing their own flag and and, and their symbols, their symbols. Do you know what one of the symbols, one of the earlier symbols of the European common market and the European community was? It was the Tower of Babel. They actually made a stamp of it for themselves. And they used it to promote that, you know, there's many worlds and many ways, you know, to achieve as a nation, you know, the, the goals of a nation. But you know what they don't add? To achieve the goals of a nation without God. We can do it ourselves. By the time we get to the top of this pinnacle of this, this Tower of Babel, we're going to find out we're the ones that are God's. No, there is no God up here. Just us. I'll, I, I, I'm getting ahead of myself. man. I'm getting about two weeks worth of stuff here. <laughs> but, but, what, but I want, you know, we'll look into more detail of, about it later. But, but, you know, it wasn't so much that they built this tower to be near to the one true creator, God. That's not why they built the tower. But Dr. Henry Morris described the birth of the Babylonian religion this way. Very simply, he said, it was a monstrous system of evolutionary, polytheistic, pantheistic, spiritistic, astrological idolatry. That's what the Tower of Babel is all about. And again, we'll study it in more detail later. But here's the thing. Evolutionary. We have, to, we, you know, we have to come from a lesser form to a greater form. We ourselves are evolving into a greater society. Are we? As far as I can tell, we're getting worse as a people. Uh, they call themselves polytheistic, which means you know, many gods, a belief that there are many gods and many roads to God. As it were, when you put it all together, they're all gods, you know, that we're just we're just polytheists. We believe in many gods. Pantheistic means that God isn't everything. Spiritistic is that, uh, you know, this is dealing with, you know, the mysticism of uh, which when, when, when you break it right down, it comes back down to demonism and de- uh, um, uh, demonic worship and, and uh, things of that sort. And then lastly, of course, astrological idolatry. And there's some very interesting things about astrological idolatry, by the way, that, that, uh, that pertain to us as Christians. Because from the very beginning, when God put the stars in the sky, and He formed and He, and he placed the pictures of the, of the constellations, they were actually there to point us to, to Him. Man took that and turned it into astrology, and into the horoscope, and it became more of a, a spiritualistic thing rather than a spiritual way of of seeing God. So uh, we'll talk about that again in another time. I'm talking about pride affecting our worship. It affects our worship because it takes our eyes off of the real and true God. Secondly, pride affects our worship when we try to impress God or others with our goodness. This is something that we in the church have to be very careful of. But God is no respecter of persons. We cannot worship the Lord with a spirit of pride. We cannot truly worship the Lord with a spirit of pride. I mean, we can go through the motions. We can be raising our hands. We can be singing, you know, and all. But I tell you this. You can't worship the Lord with a spirit of pride. You cannot truly worship the Lord with a spirit of pride. Psalm 101, verse 5 says, Whoso privily slanders his neighbor, him will I cut off. Him that has a high look and a proud heart will will not I suffer or endure or put up with. God's not going to put up with somebody who has a high look. What is a high look? That's a conceited look. I'm better than you all. Or or, or a, a proud heart, which is an arrogant heart. You know, an arrogant heart usually is masked by false humility. No, the humility has to be in the heart. We have to lower ourselves before God. Which means that we need to submit ourselves to the truth of God, to the word of God, and to the God who created us. Secondly, pride will affect our view of life. Pride will affect our view of life. Again, in verse 4 of Genesis 11, that phrase, let us make us a name. We don't want the name of God on us. We want our own name. We want our own way. Every person who has attempted to be a world ruler in the mold of Nimrod has been defeated. Everyone. You know some it took longer than others, but nonetheless, everyone was defeated, and this will be Antichrist's destiny as well. Why? Because pride was at the center of everything that they did. Proverbs 15:25 says, "The Lord will destroy the house of the proud, but he will establish the border of the widow." He will destroy the house of the proud. It may take longer than we want to take before He does it, but He does it and He will do it. And if we stay proud of things that we do, God's going to deal with that pride in our lives. Proverbs 16 verse 5 says, Everyone that is is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. That's, That's a very strong statement there. Everyone that is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Though... Hand join in hand, he shall not go unpunished. It doesn't matter how strong man is, and thinking that they can join hands together as those eight uh, confederated cities that uh, Nimrod put together, and they, you know, saying we are the world and, you know, drinks Coca Cola all day long or whatever. You know, they're, they're, just by joining hands doesn't make you stronger than God. Pride affects our view of life. Which leads us to the last thing that we need to see. And that is that pride will result in the very thing we want to avoid. Pride will result in the very thing we want to avoid. Again, in verse 4 of Genesis 11, it says, Let us make us a name lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. They just didn't want to be where God wanted them to be. They wanted to be where they wanted to be. And they wanted to avoid that scattering. But guess what? God's purposes will always be fulfilled. God just doesn't throw up the towel and say, oh, I'm giving up on these people. He doesn't do that, really. He doesn't do that. But in their rebellion against God, those who followed after their prideful ways did not want to be scattered throughout the earth. They wanted to settle down. They wanted to establish their own way of doing things. People today are doing the same thing with God's word. God's Word says, you know, this is how you are to live. This is, this is how I created you. This is how I made you. And man says, no, I am going to be the way I want to be. Or they, or they use that statement, you know, God made me this way. No, God didn't make you that way. God didn't make you stupid. He didn't. He didn't. He made you to be obedient. So what does that say about the pride of the heart? You're choosing to go against God, and God have mercy on you. They wanted to settle down in their own way, establish their own way. God has a better plan for us, folks. God has a better plan. Let me say to you, I'm going to leave you with these three verses of Scripture. Proverbs 29, verse 23. A man's pride shall bring him low, but honor shall uphold the humble in spirit. What does that say about the attitude of our hearts? We're not to have proud hearts. We are to have humble hearts. Because a man's pride shall bring him low, but honor shall uphold the humble in spirit. In James 4, verse 10, it says, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. You know, that just brings to mind what the Bible, you know, how the Bible teaches that great paradox, that if you want to go up, you need to go down. If you want to be exalted, you need to humble yourself. Here's the real good one. If you want to live, you need to die. You need to die to yourself and to sin. And let Christ live in you. Let me leave you with Psalm 33, verse 11. The counsel of the Lord standeth forever. The thoughts of his heart to all generations. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. Some translations say the plans of the Lord. That's okay. But the counsel is even greater. Because, you know, when we think of just the plans of the Lord, we think of maybe a blueprint or whatever. But, you know, when we think of the counsel of the Lord, it's something that we can hear through His Word. It's something that we can read in His Word. It is something that we can live in His Word. The counsel of the Lord speaks to us. We see it, we hear it, and we can speak it. And that stands forever. You see, God never changes. Man thinks that God changes, but man, but man is fully, fully wrong. God never changes. His Word never changes. And in Hebrews 13, verse 8, it says, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today. And forever. His counsel will stand sure. Whatever it is that God calls us to do, let's do it. Because you see, he'll be glorified, and you will receive the benefit of the good of God's word. All right. Introduction and foundation for Genesis eleven given. Now we're really going to study it. But not this minute, we'll do it next week. Let's pray.